Welcome to Behind the Law with Dennis Vetrano, where you'll receive the support, the motivation, and the inspiration to be your best self each and every day. And now, here's your host, Dennis Vetrano. Joe Daly back with Behind the Law with Dennis Vetrano. Always good to have you with us, Dennis. Good to hear from you, Joe. This time around, it's a new feature called Ask Dennis. I've decided on that for today's show, <laughs> which is important. You know, I ask you the questions. We discuss things on the air and on the blog and on the on the Facebook pages. We do all of this, but people have questions for you specifically, and they do submit them to you from time to time. And I thought we could take a few minutes and you could pick out a few that came in recently to talk about. Sure. So where do you want to start? Well, I think we can start with one of the most basic ones. I was recently asked the question, does child support end automatically at 21? Uh huh. And I think that's a question we probably get more often than, than maybe anything else. Uh, and basically, child support ends by operation of law in New York State at age 21. However, many times you have to determine, you know, what is, what is your child support driven by? Is it, was your child support resolved via a divorce agreement? Was your child support uh, resolved via a family court agreement or a family court or corresponding family court order? Um, so if your case was resolved via family court order or a judgment of divorce for that matter, you have to take a look at the language. That's your first guide. If the language of your resolution, your order, or your agreement says that child support extends beyond age 21, then it can. Many times you'll see language in an order, and I've seen it, you know, hundreds of times. Is if the child is, you know, engaged in college coursework, fully matriculated to lead to a four-year degree, uh, then child support will extend till age 22 or age 23. But if your agreement is silent on it, then it's guided by New York State law, and New York State law says child support ends at 21. Theoretically, it ends by operation of law, which means it's supposed to automatically terminate, but in many of these circumstances, you'll have to petition the court to actually get. So, so for example, if child support collection unit is deducting child support from your pay, they may not stop right at 21. They may not even know to do it. I mean, they're supposed to, but they don't. Um, so in that circumstance, you may have to petition to have it end at age 21. But certainly, you know, any of these circumstances, my advice across the board is consult with a knowledgeable, experienced divorce attorney. Um, it, it'll go a real long way, and most of the lawyers out there do free consultations. So if you do the free consultation, many times you can get insight as to, um, you know, what your rights are, what the law is, how the law applies to your facts. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's actually most of the time it's good to do that that consultation and then hire that lawyer to take care of it. It tends to be the most cost-effective and most reliable way to resolve anything under divorce law. Can I ask a question to go along with that? During this current situation we're going through, a lot of people are losing their jobs. What happens if you're paying child support and all of a sudden the job is gone? Well, see, that's the thing, and that's part of the reason why we're still, you know, permitted to have some level of operation, and that is that we're dealing with emergency matters each and every day. An emergency application to stop the deduction of child support, um, emergency applications for custody and visitation that's being denied, you know, as a, and many times as a result of the pandemic, or at least in part, um, and also emergency applications for orders of protection. Those are the things we're seeing more of in terms of court intervention right now, and the court 
courts are hearing those cases, or the the rules are that they're they're supposed to be permitted to hear those cases. Um, so in a case like that, if it's me, um, I want to file right away for an emergency cessation of child support because look at it like this: child support is only retroactive from the date you file, or modifications of child support, or terminations of child support. So if you're making sixty, seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you're paying according to that, and then you lose your job, well, well, those arrears, the arrearages are continuing to go up. So if you're paying $2,000 a month, you lose your job in March, okay, April, May, June, still saying $2,000 a month. According to the law, it's only retroactive to the, from the date you file. So if you don't file to terminate or modify or amend that, that child support obligation based on your loss, the loss of your job, um, listen, you've got a problem with arrears. So it'll be interesting to see how the courts deal with it moving forward. But I think, you know, look, the law on the books right now is child support amendments, termination, modifications are only retroactive from the date that you file, period. And again, these things are being handled now in the courts despite the pandemic. Yes, the emergency family court matters are being dealt with. The, 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 basically, the most significant emergency is an order of protection in circumstances where there's domestic violence. Absolutely, that's the highest one. But I think pretty close, uh, you know, relatively close second is when you're being denied visitation or you have an emergency circumstance regarding child support. There you go. All right, let's move to another question. Who else do we have? Well, I think one of the other questions that I received just recently was actually a very good one. It was about an evidentiary issue. Now, now you know, I mean, Joe, I live and, and breathe evidence. I mean, yes. I've always loved it. Since second year of law school, I had a pro, uh, professor, Hutter, uh, I'll never forget, uh, who's actually a judge. Um, he was my professor for second year evidence. And, um, and ever since that class, I've loved evidence. I absolutely love it. And I think that once you get to a point where you start tying cases, listen, trial Trials are, are, are an interesting thing for lawyers because they take a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline, and a lot of drive to become good at them. And even once you're good at them, okay, this is, this is thousands of hours of work to become good at trying cases. And once you get to that point, even then, any trial, if you're going to do it well, it's a lot of preparation. So it's so much work and so much stress. Um, but once you get in there, and you can handle a try a case well. It's so rewarding. It's it's maybe the most rewarding thing you can do in the practice of law. It really is, at least from my perspective. Uh, so the question was basically about recordings, um, and and it was in part about evidence, and in part about trial, and in part about disclosure. Um, and and I don't think the 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 listener actually framed it that way, but um, that's the way I interpret it because lawyers see or supposed to see every angle of something. So the question is. Am I entitled to disclosure, meaning does the other side have to give me a copy of any recordings they have regarding the subject matter in a case? Um, And the answer to that question is generally, yes, they do, through a legal vehicle called discovery or disclosure. Um, Now, there's a number of different devices that you can use under the law to obtain copies of any recordings of the subject matter of a particular litigation case. 
um, you know, they're they're really kind of they're they're really kind of lawyer specific. They're not something a layperson could walk in and do really, um, or be extremely challenging. So in a, so in an average case, if I'm let's say I'm I'm going in on a family court case or or a Supreme Court case, and I know there's a recording of the subject matter of the case, um, yeah, I want to get a copy of that recording and I want to listen to it or I want to view it or hear it with audio video, um, way far in advance of the trial and make sure I'm prepared for anything that that might uh, be depicted in that particular audio or video recording. So how do you go about doing that? Well, if it's a family court case, it's a different process than a Supreme Court case. Supreme Court handles divorces. Family court handles family court cases. In family court cases, there are special proceedings. So in, in a case like that, you'd actually have to motion to get disclosure because you, there, there's no technical rule of disclosure in special proceedings. And in fact, custody and visitation cases in family court cases, there really isn't a specific avenue to pursue disclosure. So typically, you'd either have to seek an order on consent or via a motion to obtain the disclosure of that particular audio or video recording. But it's also driven by what the particular judge's court rules are in terms of pretrial rules and, and exchange of disclosure prior to the trial in the case. Um, so that's how it's really dealt with in family court. And in, in Supreme Court, in a divorce case, you typically use the, the conventional disclosure devices under the Civil Practice Law and Rules in New York, CPLR, um, which has a number of different, I believe it's Section 31, has a number of different devices you can use to obtain disclosure of a particular case. And I think part of the question was, well, if they say to me that they're not necessarily going to use it as evidence or use it at a trial, am I still entitled to get a copy of it? Well, there's two bases upon which you can get disclosure in a case. Either that it's relevant to the trial or, well, there's other reasons too, relevant to the trial or it's going to be used as evidence. So on either of those bases, you're entitled to obtain a copy of it. So I'm, I'm hoping that I didn't put you to sleep with all of that, but it's a, <laughs> it's a lot of legalese, and you, and you have to figure, anytime I speak with clients about these cases, you've got to remember. I think people take light of, of really sometimes the level of expertise that it requires to be knowledgeable and experienced and capable of handling cases up through and including trial and appeal. Um, remember, it's seven years of school and 20-plus years of practice, thousands of cases, hundreds of trials and hearings. So that's, that's, that's the viewpoint you're getting from me. That's, that's, the, that's where I sit right now. So um, that's a lot of information to impart on, on you know, what you may believe as a layperson is a singular question to me may, may become a plural question, and then it may uh, uh, involve me looking at 10 different angles. The man is thorough. That's what it's all about. Because I think we all get spoiled, Dennis. We see the legal dramas on TV. At the most, they're a, an hour long, minus commercials, 42 minutes. That's it. And you don't see the preparation that goes into the, the trial part of it. But that is so much a part of what you do all the time, which is why you are as thorough as you are. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, here's a guide. I mean, anybody who's, and, and, and bear in mind, uh, I'll add to the fact that Seven years of school, 20 years of practice, thousands of cases, hundreds of trials and hearings, and in addition, I'm looking at my book, bookshelf in my office, lawyers have to take CLEs, which is continuing legal education credits, which is basically lectures and, and teaching on the law every year, okay? So I take roughly 
average lawyer is supposed to take 16 to, re- to, I believe it's 16 every two. I don't really know because I take far in, in, in excess of what you're required to take. Um, I take upwards of 50 to 70, sometimes 100 credits every two years. So I'm looking at rows of books of classes that I've taken and, and DVDs and CDs that I've reviewed in my particular area of expertise, divorce law and trial practice. Um, so all of that being said, and, any, and anybody who tries cases well, knows that this is the case, and it's a general rule of thumb. If you're going to be in court for a trial or a hearing, say for an hour or two hours, your level of preparation is supposed to be twice that amount. So if you have a full-day trial, usually it's broken up 9 to 12, and then say 2 to 5, that's 6 hours. That means for that one day, you should have prepared 12 hours. That's what it's supposed to be, to be thorough. That's a lot of preparation. Um, so, so imagine that you do a week-long trial, you know, you're, you're doing virtually two weeks of, of preparation, and depending upon how complex it is, maybe more than that. Um, you know, and in our cases, if we have, you know, I can remember one of our most complex uh, divorce cases that we had over the past few years, you know, I was doing double the prep, and then I had a senior paralegal assisting me in that and putting together a trial notebook, you know, gathering exhibits, getting them marked, get, you know, even just the, the logistical things, I think people don't fully appreciate what it takes. You know, when I walk into the courtroom to try a case, my exhibits are copied, they're, they're marked, they're prepared to hand to the judge in advance. I have my, ref- my folder of reference documents. We have a trial notebook prepared, and then a series of questions for each and all of the um, witnesses, including the ones that you are going to cross-examine. A lot of times people think you just go in and cross-examine you know, the other side's witnesses just you know, winging it, and you're, and you're not. You know, you know the things you need to point out on cross-examination, and, um, and presumably you also have a file with research that will uh, try to anticipate any evidentiary issues, um, how the judge may rule on certain things, relevant case law, and also... A lot of times what you'll do in preparation of a trial or a hearing is you'll do a pre-trial brief or a post-trial brief, which as an experienced uh, litigation attorney, you are, you are giving the judge the legal roadmap to get to where you want them to get to. So you're going to say, hey, judge, here's my argument, here's the facts, here's the reasoning, here's what I want you to get from point A to point B. You've got to give them the law and a, and a legal brief on how they get from point A to point B. So it makes logistical sense to the judge as you're putting on the evidence uh, in front of them. I, I much prefer to do a pretrial brief so the judge has a prelude as to what the law is and the arguments that I'm going to make before I even walk into the courtroom. So everybody's thinking right now, Dennis, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> because... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, look, with cases, I tell clients, come in, we're going to start, we're going to hit the ground running with your case right away and work as hard as we can right now to prepare your case well, because I know what it takes to prepare a case for trial well. And it's 10, 15, 20 times the cost. And also time and aggravation. So, and also uncertainty. Because if you can prepare your case well early on, you convince the other side that they, they 
should acquiesce or that you're correct on the arguments you're making, prepare your client to take a fair position in the case. Hopefully, the case will resolve early on. I mean, hopefully, really, you know, the clients will come into our office alone, and I won't have to deal with the other variables, which are the judge and opposing counsel, um, you know, kind of messing up my process of trying to get these cases resolved fairly, effectively, and efficiently, um, because nothing gets in the way of, of a quick resolution uh, more than other, more additional personalities that have their own motivations in the case. My motivation is to get it resolved as efficiently as we can, and if I never did another trial and everything was resolved via agreement for the rest of my career, I'd be perfectly fine with that. I like hearing that. I like hearing that. I think we have time for one more quick one. Dennis, what else do we have? Well, okay. So the other question is, if you're going to move, are you required to tell the other party, give them notice before you move? Well, relocations are tricky because they're, uh, if I recall correctly, they're governed by Tropia, which is a particular case governing that, that legal standard in New York State. Um, and the Tropia is the name of the case. Um, so that standard tends to be relatively high if you're forced to put that before a judge. So if you have language in your agreement, and I always encourage this for parties, if you, 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 look, we don't have a crystal ball, but if you have an idea that you're going to want to relocate as you're negotiating the resolution of your divorce or your family court custody matter at first instance, like you know, for the first time, you're, you're trying to get your order done, you're doing it now. If you think you're going to want to move, try to negotiate for that now, because attempting to relocate later on can be difficult based on that legal standard in New York. However, let's say you have it resolved, you have a divorce judgment um, and, a, and corresponding agreement, and or you have a family court order. Those two things are one or the other is done now. Can you move with your child? Well, it depends upon what that agreement says. If the agreement says, which many of them do, they say you can move within a certain distance of your current location. Typically, the standard is, insofar as what I've seen, is typically 50 miles. So if you can move within the 50 miles, let's say your agreement says I can move within 50 miles, and you're going to move 25, okay? Be cautious about what that agreement says as well, because a lot of them will say, if your move is less than the 50 miles, or it substantially affects uh, or impacts the other's ability to visit with the child. Okay, That's usually part of that one term. Um, so read that once, twice, three times, and probably best off doing a consultation with an experienced divorce lawyer to read it along with you and give you some sort of insight as to what it says. Um, if it says less than 50, you're moving less than 50, and it doesn't affect their visitation, okay, looks like you can do it under the agreement, right? Right. If you can do it, what does it say about giving them prior notice? A lot of the agreements, either the divorce judgment or the custody visitation agreement, are silent on that particular aspect of it. But, look, good rule of thumb, good practice. Keep the other parent as, as advised about the child's life and anything that's happening in the child's life as you can. Sometimes these agreements also build in, look, you need to keep them updated as to what the child's living, what their home address is, and what your address is and contact information is moving forward. So if it's me, if I know I'm moving next month, I'm going to let the other parent know as far in advance as I can. Why am I going to do that? Am I going to do it because I'm required by a court order? Not necessarily. Am I going to do it because I'm required by law? Not necessarily, because if the agreement is silent and there's no particular law on it, you don't have to. But you should. 
it's a good rule of thumb. It's a good practice to get, in, to get uh, into. You know, when major things are taking place in your child's life, you want to let the other parent know in f- as far in advance as is possible. Okay, and not just because if you ever go to court, the judge is going to look favorably upon it, um, or if there's ever any question as to what you did or didn't do, or there's any issue with, you know, if, if they move for a change of custody later on, you're going to appear as if you're the parent that's in the best position to foster a strong relationship with the other parent as a result of this type of behavior. It's because it's just good practice. It's because it's just, this is the, this is the mother or father of your kid, and you want them to be as involved as is possible. And again, this is all things being equal. If they're in prison for double murder, yeah, okay, I get it. If they're, you know, a, a cocaine addict that was sexually abusing people, okay, I get it. But all things being equal, you should want the other parent involved as much as you can, and by communicating with them, not only are you going to make them, you know, involve them as much as possible, and ultimately, I think down the road, your child will thank you for that, um, but also will foster a relationship where when you need something or they have something they can tell you about or not, they treat you in kind. They treat you the same way you treat them. So although your agreement may not say anything about it, and the law may not say anything about it, if you're going to move, let the parent know in advance. Let the other parent know in far, as far in advance as is possible. There you go. It's the right thing to do. Ask Dennis our topic today here on our podcast. If you'd like to ask Dennis a question, they can do that, right, Dennis? Yes, they can certainly do that. Listen, you can certainly reach out to the office. You can uh, make comments on our Facebook page or ask questions there. Um, you know, many times we're also a- answering questions on a, um, on a website called AVO. Um, so we answer questions there as well. So, you know, or Facebook or even just contact us directly. Um, you know, we'll try, to, we'll try to put anything out there that we can so that people get information. And again, I think the process here and the point here is to um, give people as much information as they can so when they go into this process, like we were talking about in an earlier podcast, they have a plan in advance, okay? They know about these things far in advance. When you walk into a divorce lawyer's office, now you're going to know, look, about moves. And, and relocation, and you're going to know about when child support's supposed to end. You're going to know what's the most effective and efficient way to resolve your case. And, and again, that, that'll put you in a position to hopefully you both come into my office and say, hey, we're ready to mediate. We're ready to look at what's the best way to reach the fairest resolution to preserve the maximum amount of our marital resources, not just intact family, but now split family. And I mean mental, emotional, and financial resources moving forward for for your collective family, whether it's a split or an intact family, and not pay lawyers and take the time of judges to try to fight this out in a courtroom. There it is. Before we get together again, as I always invite you, please, for more information about Dennis and his firm, visit that website. Yes, drvitranolaw.com, and you're going to find a lot of these questions that you may have, burning questions you may have, will be answered by reading our blog posts. We literally have pages and pages and pages of blog posts that answer legal questions just like this one. Dennis, as always, good to have you with us. We'll do it again soon. Good to hear from you, Joe. Take care.